Here, PGA and LPGA legends, pros, top instructors, and media members from around the country sharing their stories, insights, and playing lessons every week right here on Next on the Tee. Take it away, Chris. And now back with me on the French Lake Resort guest line is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page and over on Twitter, at Peter Kessler. Also, be sure to check out Peter's website, peterkessler.com, because he's got a lot of great video content and uh, some really fantastic interviews that he has done posted up there as well. And nobody knows the history of the game of golf better than Peter does. And among the great quotes that you'll hear about Peter, and I always like to share these two with you. If you weren't fortunate enough to see Peter's show, Golf Talk Live, when it was on the Golf Channel, it was by far the best golf talk show ever. World Golf Magazine accurately called Peter Golf's Walter Cronkite. And a couple of years ago, PGA.com said Peter is one of the greatest storytelling voices in the wor- in the history of the world. Great quotes. And I couldn't agree with post statements more. And very excited to have Peter back again with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Peter. How are you, my friend? I am fine. How's my buddy? Can you hear me? It, I can. I got you great. So... Peter, I, I got to tell you, I love the videos that you've been posting both out on Twitter and social media and on your website as well. Three great ones. You got the one with Sam Sneed. You've got one with Jack Nicholas and a great, uh, what was it, 17 or 18 part series that you cut up with uh, your time with Seve Ballestero. But talk about the time you got to spend with all three of those great individuals. Well, Seve Ballesteros, I mean, um, you know, one of the, the joys of my life. And, you know, of course he died, you know, in his early fifties, mid fifties, 54. And, uh, the first time I actually met him was in 1980 because he had won the open championship in 79. And so he came to San Diego in 80 and I had lived there in the seventies. And for some reason was there in 80 when he came down for the, uh, uh, the uh, Tournament of Champions, which was held at La Costa, where I had been a member and the club champ a few years before, and Seve didn't speak any English then. And when he was so long, people just, the, the things that people don't know about some of these guys are just so stunning. He was so long, it was ridiculous. The 18th hole at La Costa in those days was and still is a very long, really hard uphill par four into the wind that, you know, if you were a good, if you were a five handicapper better and you played from the back tees, you would have, depending on the wind, well, you could have a five wood down to maybe four iron. I mean, it was a lot of club. So Tom Weisskopf, I watched him hit his drive on 18. This is 1980. And then he hits three iron up to the green on 18. Sevy's in the next group hits three wood off the tee and eight iron onto the green. His swing speed was so incredible in the way that it gathered pace through to the finish line, not to the ball, but way past and up and outward and around. It was just the most unbelievably free action, very Tiger-esque. Of the early Tiger, when Arnold used to say about him, he has the best release I've ever seen. Is Seve had that same release for a while. It was so free, and it was so fast, and it was so full. And even on his little pitches, he always finished his swing. Even much later, when we became friends, and I hit a lot of pitches with him, 
you know, even on a 35 yarder, he, it would finish all the way around. Now it wouldn't get there quickly, but it would get there and he didn't ease into the position. He would swing to the position. It was really stunning because he, he could adjust for every pitch shot and, and everybody tries to do it instinctively, but he knew a lot more about it and had better feel. I mean, he, he could make some incredibly minute adjustments. Like he may choose to hit the chip shot six feet high in the air instead of five feet high in the air at its apex and pick a spot that's one foot to the right. I just I mean the subtleties in terms of his landing spots and how he wanted the ball to roll out and he didn't want things to spin ever. He didn't want spin. Thought it was too unpredictable and he loved hitting into the wind, didn't like downwind, didn't like left to right winds, didn't mind right to left winds. But, you know, he's one of the loveliest people that I've ever known. And Sam Sneed, interestingly enough, also spent a lot of time with me on pitching. I met Sam when I was 22 and he was 62 in 1974 when he came to the L.A. Open in a year in which he almost won the PGA Championship um, at the age of 62, which Tommy Bolt had nearly done as well, finished tied for third in 71 behind Jack at Palm Beach Gardens. So I go down to the range on the Monday night of the L.A. Open in 74. And in those days, nobody went to golf tournaments. It, so few people went to golf tournaments at that time that if you or I went to the first tee at a very, very star-studded field and said, okay, I'll meet you in two hours on the 10th tee, we'd see each other 15 times before we got to 10. There was nobody there. So I went down to the range Monday night. Sam Sneed's there by himself, literally not another living individual. So Sam's down there on the range. I go sitting five feet behind him. And after 45 minutes, he starts to talk to me. By Wednesday, I do the same thing Tuesday. By Wednesday night, he had said, let's have dinner. And I said to him, great. And he said, I need an hour. And I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I have to get serviced. And I thought, I wonder what that means, but I'm not going to ask. And so we went and had dinner. And years later, I said to Tommy Bolt, who was really good friends with Sam, I said, hey, Tommy, I said, what What did Sam mean when, when he said he was getting serviced? And, you know, he got all excited and started laughing, and he wiped the back of his forehead with the back of his left, the front of his forehead with the back of his left hand and started giggling. He said, oh, old nudie, which is what he called Sam because there wasn't anything under the hat. He said his deal with tournament organizers were that they would actually have a woman waiting in his room that was his appearance fee a woman so that sam could be serviced so i had no idea for years what it what that possibly could mean and i was always afraid to ask sam but he taught me how to pitch and sevy you know taught me too and it's the best part of my game and when i remember what they told me but sam said if you he said to me what kind of player are you and i guess i was about a three at the time so i said three and he said well if you want to be good which was great he said, if you want to be a good player, he said, what you need to do is you need to hit 50-yard pitch shots to the exclusion of virtually everything else for a year. You can't hit anything outside of 50 yards. You can hit 20% of your shots inside 50 yards, so you're hitting some shorter pitches and chips as well. He said, but you don't do anything else for, for a whole year. So I never thought about it, never did it. And then we put in a new chipping area a couple of years ago. So on September 1st of 7, 2017, I went for 11 months because August, for some reason, the next year stuff came up last year. So I did it for 11 straight months, hit 50-yard pitches. I played the hardest course in the history of golf 
and my scoring average came down 10 shots over 90-day periods a year apart. That I, for the, pre, the 90 days before I started wow. pitching, it was 10 shots higher than the 90 days after I completed pitching 11 months later. And what happens is when you get good from 50 yards, well, then you're good from everything in. So you know you're going to have something around 15 feet or better. You know, that even if you're 50 yards, you're pretty sure going to be inside of 20 feet, which means all of a sudden you're not three-putting, and you're going to make a few of those, and you're going to hit a few to five feet, not 20 feet. But if you know that, generally speaking, that you can hit your pitches within 15 feet of the hole, that changes everything. It reduces your number of putts, and you didn't even work on your putting. And then you have fewer bunker shots, and then you have fewer double chips. I mean, it's just an astonishing thing. And then the 50-yard swing actually becomes your real swing. It's just longer and fuller, but it's already on track. And so something inside you just lets you know to just keep going in both directions. You're not going to just make the 50-yard swing, it'll, but it'll be just a, a, it'll feel the same. It'll just like a, a putting stroke from 50 feet feels different from one from five, but still feels the same. Just that, you know, it's going to have a, it's going to have more beat to it or it's going to be longer. So uh, fascinating spending time with both of those guys. And Peter, to your point about 1980 and with Seve Ballesteros, when uh, I was watching some of the conversation, he talked about his master's victory in 1980. And, and people may not remember that being his first one, but it was a four-stroke victory over Gibby Gilbert and Jack Newton. He had a seven-stroke lead going into the final round, a 10-stroke lead going into the second nine that nearly almost evaporated because he bogeyed 10, he doubled 12, and another bogey on 13. Talk about what he shared with you about that day and about that Masters event. Well, I mean, my strongest memory of that is that I had moved with my wife, Janet, on our one-year anniversary in June of 78 to London. and so. I, you know, so I started going to the major championships. Unfortunately, I missed Jack in 78 right after we moved and I had to watch it on TV from London, but I didn't make that mistake again. And, um, but in 1980, I was in, uh, London and you couldn't get the Masters on television then. So my mom lived in LA and I called her at about the time I figured the leaders were making the turn. And she put the phone next to the television, and I listened to Seve's whole back nine through my telephone in London, which was an extraordinary bill when it finally arrived. And I listened to the whole thing, and then I talked to him about it later, of course, on a number of occasions. And I said, you know, what was that? And, you know, and you, it sometimes, you know, he said what what you would say. He said, I, yeah, you know, he said, I don't know what happened. He said, I just don't know what happened. He said, it's such a big lead. He said, I, you know, I started thinking about other things. I was thinking, you know, that I won the Masters. And he said, and then I had the trouble, and he called it Amen Corner. And uh, he said, then, you know, not so easy, but till I hit the four iron under the 15th hole, and I two-putted for a birdie. And he said, then it was okay. He said, and, of course, that's what he didn't do in 86, six years later. Again, needing four, he decided to hit four iron, which was probably the wrong club, because he tried to hit a soft cut. And he decelled, which is exactly what recreational players do when they have too much club in their hand. You go, oh, I'll hit a three-quarter, but you really don't because you ease into the three-quarter position instead of swinging to the three-quarter position, which is exactly what happened to Seve. He kind of eased into it instead of swinging and making a little bit of a cut move on it. And so 
you know, there he was in the same situation twice. One time it works out. Second time he also had a lead and it didn't work out. But, you know, he knew it was the golden bear in front of him. You know, in 1980, you're not worried about Gibby Gilbert. But in 1986, you're fully aware of who Jack Nicklaus is and what he's done. And you're playing right behind him and you're watching him make, you know, six birdies and an eagle. And so that's seven holes under par out of the last 10 that he played. So that fully had Seve's attention, too, in 86 when he got over that shot. But he just celebrated too early because when he hit the six iron in the 13 and he got all excited with his brother and they were celebrating and the ball was in the air and he's going, fantastica, fantastica. And, of course, it was fantastic. I finished six feet from the hole and knocked the sucker in. You know, and then all of a sudden, for the moment, he was in control. But, I, but he, well, he he admitted that he just celebrated way too early. And it's, uh, hello, Jack Nicholas, And he's still Jack Nicholas. Doesn't matter what happened last year. Right now, he's Jack Nicholas at the Masters playing Jack Nicholas kind of golf. So, you know, that was inside Seve's brain, too. So, to your point, was, was Nicholas in his head at that point? Because I'm. As I was talking to Ben Wright earlier in the show, I mean, the roar started to go up. And the next thing you know, to your point, Jack Nicholas is now Jack Nicholas of 1975, not Jack Nicholas of 1985. And things start to steamroll and the crowd starts getting behind him and the roar starts getting louder. So does that get in his head at that point? You know, Ben Wright was saying that he thought that uh, Seve rushed, rushed that shot because he wanted to get hit that shot over with before the next roar came up. I don't know. Was that in his head, do you think? Well, no. He had a quite uh, to the contrary, he had to wait a really long time to play the shot. You know, a little like Colin Montgomery at Wingfoot in 06. You know, Colin standing in the right center of the 18th hole at Wingfoot. I'm sitting right behind the green. I played that course over 100 times. I know everything about that hole. And, you know, Colin Montgomery, if you said to Colin Montgomery, okay, it's the last hole of a major championship. You can't hit a little pitch or chip for a shot. You know, if you're going to pick a full shot, where would you like to be in the fairway? Where would you like the pin to be? And, and what club would you like to hit? But it has to be, you know, nothing less than six iron. So he, so if you said that to Colin, he would say, well, six iron, because that's the club I hit the best, including my driver. And I'd like to be in the right center of the fairway. And I'd like the pin to be in the middle right. I'd like to start in the left center of the green and just hit a little cut in. That's exactly the shot he had at wing foot in 06. Now, in Monty's case, he had a long history of having issues at particularly important times. Seve did not have that history. Seve did not have a history of somebody who didn't close. You know, if you look at the most recent, you know, he could have won in 85, he could have won in 86, and he could have won in 87. He lost in the playoff in 87. It's not exactly like he didn't, you know, own the place. You know, and he won in 83 over Tom Watson. And remember that when Seve first made his mark internationally, it was at the 76 Open Championship, and it was very important to, to him at the time and certainly for his long-term psyche and why I don't think the Nicholas thing was that big a deal in his head at the time he hit the shot is because when he made the up and down as a 19-year-old playing with Johnny Miller in the last group, as Johnny shooting 66, of course, record on the final day to you know win by four shots, Seve got it up and down by threading a little chip, running chip in between two bunkers. Trevino said, watching at home, he jumped out of his chair. He couldn't believe anybody would even try that shot. And Seve said, after he made the birdie, to tie Jack for second, he said, at 19, I knew I belonged and that I could compete. And it was never a doubt in my mind ever, ever again. And so 
after that four-iron in 86, remember, he made it to a playoff in 87, but three-putted 10. And then he won the British Open, the Open Championship in 1988, shooting a final round 65 to Nick Price's 69. And Nicky had the lead, you know, and Seve played, you know, just ridiculous golf almost. You know, he went deep birdie, eagle birdie at one point and almost chipped in on the last hole, made every single putt, you know, even got a laugh about it. But, you know, I guess, I think I, I would say, yes, he was certainly aware, but he certainly didn't have a history of hitting bad shots in critical situations. So it's, you know, it could happen to anybody. I mean, Jack sure didn't do it much. Arnold did his share of it. Lee Trevino did his share of it. So, you know, everybody has that. It was just so magnified because it was Jack and because Jack was 46 and because he hadn't won a major since 1980. And it's Seve, arguably, well, not even arguably at that time, probably the most beloved player in the world in 1986. I mean, Jack was past his prime. And, you know, Greg in 86 was popular, but Seve was more popular and a better player. And, you know, and he was the he was the handsomest guy and he was the sexiest guy and he was the coolest guy and he had the most charisma and he was the most fun to watch. And, you know, so every single, you know, if you could pick anybody that you could have every single thing of you be like him, somebody playing on tour, then you know, it would have been savvy. Peter, you mentioned Mr. Palmer a moment ago and obviously having he won four masters and uh, but they were bookended 58 to 64. If you look at Gary Player and Jack Nicklaus. They were winning major major championships for 20, 25 years, right? Nicholas at the end there in 86. But Arnold was great, but for a very short period of time. Why do you think Palmer wasn't able to extend the career and end up uh, winning more majors as he got into the 1970s and maybe even into the late 1970s like uh, Gary Player was and then Nicholas into the 80s? Well, I would say three things. I would say uh, Jack Nicklaus arrived and was playing the best golf anybody had ever played exactly when Arnie became the king. And two, Arnie started to have some frailties with his putting as early as 63 when he was only 33 years old. And at 34, after he won the Masters in 64, he was definitely having issues with his putting that would last, well, for the rest of his life. Um, you know, he became, uh, you know, he became tentative at times and left it low, or his grip pressure in his right hand was a little firm, and so he'd miss it on the high side with a little too firm just outside the edge instead of just inside the edge of the hole. And, you know, so the combination of Jack coming along the the erosion certainly in his own head of his ability to hold every critical putt was now no longer firmly in place. Now compare that with Jack Nicholas. Now Jack Nicholas at almost 80 is as steady over the putter on a putting green as he was when he was 25. He is as good a putter now as he has ever been. You watch him in the par three tournament it's a freaking joke. I mean, his putting is so unbelievable. I remember talking to Sandy Lyle, who played with Jack in 86, which, you know, most people don't remember who he played with, but he played with Sandy Lyle, who, of course, won, would win the Masters, you know, with that great up and down out of the fairway bunker on 18. And Sandy said to me that Jack's putting stroke in the final round of that 86 Masters, he said it was like, Watching something in in where in a place where they make tools or a place 
where there's an assembly line and that there are p- pieces that move. He said it was he said it was like watching you know a, a steel uh, uh, the movement of a watch. It was it was like watching something being constructed in an assembly line, but human hands weren't involved. He said it was just. He said the space through the sky that the putter traveled and how close it stayed to the ground and the pace of the, of the forward stroke and the fact that there was a, that there wasn't acceleration. There was an increase to a speed like you're driving down the highway and Jack would get to 55 and he would keep it at 55. A lot of guys decelerate and go 50. A lot of guys accelerate and go 65. Well, if you go 65, you're going to miss it on the high side and long. And if you go 50 instead of 55, you're going to miss it on the low side. And if you miss it on the low side on fast greens, that means as the ball is dying, it's dying away from as opposed to, uh, as opposed to towards the hole. You know, when your putt is get the, dying the last few feet, you want it dying towards the cup from the high side, not from the cup going now falling away from you now it's three feet now it's four feet now it's five feet so all of a sudden arnold had some of that going on too so you gotta so jack had a stroke you know that you know is really you know a once in a lifetime kind of thing i mean jones felt that he lost his putting at the first round of the masters now he had retired from competition four years earlier but on the second hole he played on the first day of the first masters he went "Uh oh guess who lost his putting touch and never got it back again. Gary Player got to keep his. Uh, Tommy Bolt could still putt in his 90s. Jack can still putt in his almost 80. Gary Player definitely, yeah, I mean, just Gary Player putt, putt as good today as the day that I met him, then the day before, then 25 years before that. Um, but Arnold lost his stroke. A lot of guys lost their stroke at 34. You know, Tom Watson, you know, had trouble at 34. Sam started having trouble at that age. Hogan lasted longer. People accused him of having trouble, but the trouble was later. It wasn't early. It was later when it didn't count. You don't win nine majors if you're not a great putter. You don't win three majors out of three majors played in a calendar year if you're not a great putter from five feet. It meant he was making everything. That means you're lagging everything right up to the edge of the hole and leaving yourself nothing, which defines Jack Nicholas's putting. You know, the great thing about Jack was that no matter how long the putt he left himself, he never left himself like another one. There was never a second putt. It was always just a tap it into the hole. There was not a lot of strenuous stuff, except at U.S. Opens where you might have to hit a chip or a bunker shot or, you know, you couldn't leave the putt stone dead because of the slope that it was on. So he had a lot of five-footers, and that's how people who grew up with him remember him as, you know, being locked in over a five-footer really steady. You know, and we found out later that what he was thinking was that the reason he stayed over it so damn long was he was waiting until he agreed with himself that he was now going to find no possible way to miss the putt, that there was nothing he could do that could cause him to miss. Once he knew that for sure it was going in, then he would make the stroke. He and Weisskopf were partnered in the Ryder Cup one year. They're playing a, they're playing a best ball match, so either, the, either ball can play. So Weisskopf's got uh, 10 feet. Jack's got 15 feet on the same line. So Tom says, do you want me to move my mark? So Jack said, no, just pick your mark up. And Tom said, what do you mean? And Jack said, she said, just pick your mark up. And Tom said, well, what do you mean? And Jack said, rack your cue. I've got this. And Tom said, but you're 15 feet. I'm closer. Jack said, there's no possible way I could miss this putt. Jack knocks in the 15 footer. One day I said to Jack, so how many greens did you hit in your prime? And he goes, 
Well, I did 16. He said, so I didn't really ever work on my short game because knew I was only going to have two chips. And for sure, I knew I could chip him to 10 feet. And obviously, I'm never going to miss one of those. So, you know, what would I be doing missing a 10-footer? I sat down with him one day, and we could only think of two putts, two between us, that he missed in his whole career. Well, okay, three that 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 mattered. One in 1960 in the last round of the U.S. Open. One at Pebble Beach where he thought the second putt broke towards the ocean on 18, and he had a chance to 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 uh, to perhaps go into a tie, but but ended up three putting. And then the putt that he missed against Watson on the 71st hole at Turnberry, a five-footer for birdie, and Watson made a putt of similar length, and then, of course, they both buried the last hole, and Watson birdied three of the last four, and Jack had had a lead going into the last four holes. So Jack kept his stroke. Watson lost his. Watson lost his, you know, not too long after he lost to Sebby in 84 at the Open Championship. So it all goes back to the root of the initial question, which was, fear of Jack, and I say, yeah, not really. You know, he thought he belonged with Jack in 76. He wouldn't have had any reason to change his mind in 86 because he'd already won four major championships by then. You know, and was already the most successful player in the history of the European Tour by then. So, Peter, to that end, as we start to look ahead to this year's Masters, and Tiger has now become the odds-on favorite to win it. But I, I have a moment of pause, speaking of putting, because he's missing a fair number of those four and five footers. We just saw it this past weekend in the match play. Your thoughts about Tiger. Is he is he the odds on favorite to win it in your mind? Because I think you gotta be a great putter to Gus National. I I wouldn't even really have him on the list. Other than the fact that, you know, for some reason for he and Phil, they they seem to be able to not play particularly inspired golf and seem to get around that golf course somehow. I played that golf course. I don't even see how that's possible. I mean, you know, I'm not Phil or Tiger, but I mean, I just, you know, you see some of the spots when you play there where you go, he got it up and down from here. He hit the green from here. He got it 10 feet from here. He made a putt from here. I mean, it's just like you just can't believe it. So, you know, so Tiger can slop it around a little bit, but you know, slop means, but I'm putting like a genius. You can't slop and then not putt good because then you end up with slop. Slop plus genius putting equals a good score. Plus plus sloppy putt, sloppy plus sloppy putting is nothing good. So I don't, I, I mean, based on recent form, I certainly am not impressed. I mean, you know, it is still the person Tiger Woods. It's just not the player Tiger Woods. And so... You know, it's easy to get too confused. I think he looks a little stiff. I don't think he looks particularly comfortable. I do really like his golf swing. I really, really like his golf swing. And I don't see, you know, and I don't believe for two seconds that putting bad last week means putting bad next week or or, or, or vice versa unless you're Tiger in his prime and unless you're Jack Nicklaus in his prime unless you're Arnold Palmer 58 to 64. I mean, you know, you... You know, to define yourself as a great player, you have to do two things. You have to win a whole bunch of major championships, and you have to be in contention to win a bunch of major championships. From 1970 through 1980, Jack played in 44, 39 top tens, 10 wins, 8 seconds. That's what you call being there. That's what you call closing, 10 out of 44. And Tiger did something similar over a time period of 1997 through 2008. Uh, showing up, closing. So now he's not... He's showing up a little bit. He's definitely not closing. The Tour Championship was a wow that he won. 
it's been 10 years, 11 years. It'll be 11 years now that he since he won a major championship. So odds on favorite. First of all, the whole idea of trying to guess who's going to win golf tournament is so hilarious to me. It's not two teams. It's good for goodness gracious. It's 100 people playing. Four guys in the field that nobody, including their own mothers, ever heard of are going to shoot the four best rounds they ever had in their life. And sometimes that's good enough to beat everybody in the field. Ben Curtis at the Open Championship, Charlie Cootie at the at the Masters Championship. You just don't know. There's no advance information. Rory McIlroy could be the favorite at the golf tournament, stand on the second tee at Augusta National, decide to hit a hard cut down the left center, hit a snap hook. You hit snap hook it off the second tee at Augusta National. That's an eight. That's an eight. It's an actual snowman. You don't make par, you don't make birdie, and you don't make bogey. It just takes one triple, and the whole thing is over. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how anybody's going to putt. Nobody knows how anybody's going to feel when you wake up in the morning. Do your fingers feel fatter today? Do the grips feel different today? Does your tempo feel off today? Do you feel a little off from because of something you might have eaten last night? Is something creeping into your mind that shouldn't be? We don't know any of those things. That's why they play. It's not the Super Bowl where you say, okay, Tom Brady, and he's this age, but he's really had a great season, and the other teams could be intimidated, and this quarterback's, you know, maybe a good young quarterback, but he's never been in the Super Bowl before, so... I like Tom Brady's chances in the New England Patriots, and they've already won five. You know, you can at least have a discussion. When there's a hundred people as opposed to two teams, that means a hundred people can win the tournament. Now, there's only five to ten realistic, serious contenders that we expect to be there on Sunday, but somebody who's never done it will do it. Charles Schwartzel, birdie the last four holes. I never knew who he was before, and I know more about golf than anybody in the history of the world. Guy birdies the last four holes. You just don't know. So, favorite, prohibitive favorite? Oh, stop already. Can we just watch the thing? Why can't it be like a movie? <laughs> when I go to the movies, I don't want to see any interruption. I don't want anybody to tell me beforehand. That's why I don't watch the coming attractions, because they tell you the whole damn thing. I want it to unfold. I want it to be a surprise. If I read the book like The Godfather, okay, I kind of know what to expect. I don't know what to expect next week, and I don't care what happens. I just want it to be great. I just want it to be fun. I'm not going to root for anybody in particular. I just want it to be a great golf tournament. If Tiger plays great, fantastic. Odds on favorite my eye. There's no such thing as any of that. There's like 10 or 15 guys that you can bet on, and if you can only bet on one of them per year in your pool, there's absolutely no way of trying to figure out how to do the thing because there's no great players who are in contention, who can close major championships with regularity that we can count on because nobody's good enough. Peter, having said all that, Remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things that uh, that you're doing, whether it's on your website or it's on uh, social media as well. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. I mean, you know, I got all kinds <laughs> of stuff up on Twitter. I have comedy on Twitter. I have essays on Twitter. I have I, uh, Twitter sniper stuff. I have me singing songs. I have me doing parodies. I have me writing and singing master songs. All of them on key. All of them cool. Serious commentary. All kinds of stuff from the greatest library in the history of golf created by me. All of that stuff is online. All of that stuff, really, social media is the place to go. Check out my Twitter account. If you like really good content and you want it 90-second chunks because everybody just needs it to be brief now, that's what I made for you. And every second of the 90 seconds is absolutely delicious. So 
check out my stuff. Nobody else knows how to do it. And there's everything you could possibly think of from people crying during interviews to people hysterical to, to comedy to everything you can possibly imagine. Just go check out my stuff on Twitter. Look at my stuff at PeterKessler.com. It's the best stuff around. I'm working my way back in the middle of the deal. So if you like me, that's good news. If you don't like me, Glenn Fry, the Eagles, said to me one day during a round of golf, he said, Petey, now that you're on TV and doing this, he said, what you need to know is if 10% of the people don't like you, he said, that's the right number. He said, you don't want everybody to like you. He said, 90%'s the number. He said, so if 90% like you, don't worry about the other 10. Believe me, I do not worry about the other 10. <laughs> yes, I can attest to that. Peter, you're the best, my friend. Spending Tuesday nights with you is always the best. Thank you so much for continuing to be a part of the show and come back as often as you have. You're, uh, you're a national treasure, and I can't thank you enough for being here. You're my guy. I love you, buddy. Take good care of yourself. You do the same, Peter. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching Thanks. up with you again goes, soon. Goes both ways. I told my wife and son you wished them happy birthday. I didn't forget, and they were appreciative. I appreciate that. Take care, my friend. We'll catch you up too, soon. Thank you. See you, Peter. That is the great Peter Kessler. Again, PeterKessler.com, at Peter Kessler on Twitter. It just doesn't get any better. And he's right. The, the content, the videos, the things that he is doing, absolutely spectacular.